Welcome to the first edition of In Focus, an occasional series of long-form interviews with me, Marcus Stead, exclusive to Talk Podcasts. My guest in this first edition is writer Karen Harradine. Karen was raised in Johannesburg, South Africa, under the apartheid regime, and grew up in a traditional Jewish home. Her parents placed great emphasis on her education, and her father passed on his fascination with politics to her. Karen obtained an undergraduate degree in journalism, classical civilizations, and anthropology, and a separate honours degree in anthropology. In the last 20 years, Karen has lived in London, Ipswich, Singapore, and currently resides in Vancouver, Canada. Growing up in the apartheid regime has made Karen suspicious of big government, extremism, and all forms of totalitarianism. She has a lifelong interest in politics, religion, spirituality, anti-Semitism and Zionism. The interview is based around an article Karen wrote for the Conservative Woman website, in which she discussed how the United Kingdom was willfully abandoning its Judeo-Christian heritage, and is replacing it with the destructive twin gods of multiculturalism and political correctness. She also wrote about how Christians of all races and nationalities are now the most persecuted people in the world, and says there is a need for a Christian equivalent of the International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. In our wide-ranging discussion, we cover the United Kingdom's willful abandonment of its Judeo-Christian culture, the dangers of identity politics, narcissism, virtue signalling, and a hedonistic approach to life, post-liberal Puritans, the Orwellian control of language, transgenderism, the brainwashing of children, Brexit, anti-Semitism, the muddled thinking of the Christian church leaders, and widespread persecution of Christians in the Middle East and Africa, and also how to tackle Islamic extremism, both in the UK and overseas. This truly is a wide-ranging, fascinating, hour-long discussion. Karen, thank you for agreeing to do the interview. Um, Having read your article on the Conservative Woman website, there seems to be a theme that flows right the way through it, and it's that everybody has a moral authority in life. For some people, it's the Bible or another religious text. For others, it's whatever suits themselves at the time. And for others, it's whatever's popular. They see which way the tide of popular opinion is flowing, and they make sure they agree with it. And I sensed from your article that you believe the UK is willfully abandoning its Judeo-Christian culture and replacing it with what exactly? I would say the cult of the individual. Um, I would say that, the, you know, people need something to believe in. This is the one thing that studying anthropology taught me, that you know, everyone's got some sense of believing in something bigger than themselves. Mm. They need it in order to function as a society. So whether it's religion or an ideology, we always have something that's greater than ourselves. I think what is happening in the UK is because our our Judeo-Christian background and ethos and ideology is being discarded, and I agree with you willfully so, Mm. the problem, what you need, the vacuum that's being created is this narcissism and individualization that has cause an obsession with identity so we're seeing the whole thing even veganism something that you know years ago would have just been oh a a way of life has become a a sense of 
extreme identity, the same thing with transgenderism, mm. the same thing with race, and there is so much narcissism that comes from it mm. that instead of focusing on the what on what is moral and right, even if it means taking the focus away from yourself, mm. which is what religion teaches us. It teaches us to connect with something that's greater than ourselves, which for me is a sense of God, but it also teaches us to be aware of other human beings and their needs and what they are about. And I think what is happening, our Judeo-Christian background is an enlightenment, part of an enlightenment process that is ongoing and that has been discarded. And in its place, we have a narcissistic, spoiled culture and identity politics, which is very destructive and very divisive. Yes, and I, I agree with where you're coming from on this. We're recording this podcast on the 3rd of January 2019, and the festive season is just coming to an end. And one of the observations I would make comparing how society is now, at how I, when I was growing up from the late 1980s throughout the 1990s, is that you never see when you're walking around, whether where I live in Cardiff or other towns and cities in the UK, you never see nativity scenes in shopping arcades or in town centres anymore. And it seems clear to me that the default excuse that you get is that they don't want to offend people of other faiths and yet rarely do I hear of people of other faiths saying they have a problem with nativity scenes or Christmas decorations is it really all about secular liberals imposing their unofficial religion of diversity and political correctness as the new sort of unofficial state religion of the UK I think very much so. It's interesting that you bring that up. Uh, two things. One of my very close friends is Muslim, and even though she and I you know, are not Christian and don't celebrate Christmas, she still sent me a Christmas card all the way from the UK, which I loved. Mm. And I, on my own social media account on Facebook, wished all my friends a Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year. My husband isn't Jewish, he's Christian. I make him Christmas dinner each Christmas day. I, I have never come across anybody who would kind of say, oh, you know, you know, who's not Christian, don't celebrate Christmas, do, you know, don't have, you know, they mustn't put Christmas decorations up because it's offensive. It's part of British culture. Christmas is wonderful and it's a happy occasion and it's a family occasion. It should be celebrated. I have not, nobody of my own co-religionists or of people that I know who are Muslim have ever objected to it. It is this whole liberal, virtue-signaling, guilt-led, self-denial, crushing of your own sense of identity and culture Mm. that seems to just be all-pervading amongst these liberals. I call them post-liberal Puritans. I have for a while because everything is censored. You're not allowed to do this and you can't do that and you're racist if you say this. And and now Christmas decorations, it kind of shocks me that there's no nativity scenes because that's so lovely, so much part of Christmas. That is also part of we might offend someone 
And it's all about, you know, look at me. I'm so great. I'm a virtue signaler. I'm much better than you because I'm so aware of other people's so-called needs when it's actually just made up mm. and made as done to kind of make the person feel better about themselves and to kind of make them feel elevated above others. But what they're doing is they're denigrating their own culture, mm. their own religion. And I find that bizarre. I, I agree with you completely. And I would add on to what you just said that um, three, I think, of my Muslim friends sent me Christmas <laughs> greetings. I had a Christmas card from my Muslim neighbor. Two other friends got, got, got in touch with me uh, through social media to wish me a Merry Christmas. And the same goes for my many Jewish friends. And exactly. none, none of these people have any problem at all. In fact, both the, Jew, the Jewish faith and the Islamic faith have a deep respect for Jesus and would not and, and would certainly not feel offended by people celebrating his birth. Um, does it seem, though, that the official, this, this religion that's coming through now of diversity and political correctness, it's making what we can say narrower and narrower all the time. And we are seeing this Orwellian control of language. Um, we're not at the stage yet where you can get put in prison for holding such views. But if you were particularly in the public sector in the UK, the views yeah. you can express and what you can say is becoming narrower and narrower as each year goes by. And we're having to use loaded language and loaded terms to describe people of transgender or even, you know, certain words within homosexuality. You've got to be careful what you say now. Things are getting narrower and narrower all the time. I totally agree. I, I, I think for myself, and I've written about this several times, I cannot bear the whole concept and idea of hate speech. And I have found, even just over the last year, how quickly it's become part of our lexicon of language. Mm. You know, so-and-so has said this, and it's hate speech, or it's a hate crime. These are totally Orwellian. I'd far rather, and I've said this before, I'd rather know what somebody thinks of me as a Jew or as a woman or in any way, mm. rather than have it go underground. Because if it's out there, I can tackle it, I can counteract it, I can argue against it. Mm. But the moment that you force anything underground, as the censorship does, as the whole concept of hate crime, hate speech does, what happens is you polarize people. So those who've been kind of in the center will start to become far left or far right because those are the choices that are left for them. Yeah. I grew up in South Africa under apartheid South Africa. I have a deep wariness against big government and anything that senses. I mean, I grew up in apartheid South Africa where people of different races weren't allowed to marry each other, mm. where you'd be thrown in prison if you just raise one voice against the apartheid government. So any words are so vital and our freedom of words is so essential for a functioning, healthy democracy. And what is happening, and I've said before, is the UK is starting to slide into totalitarianism mm. because we are starting to censor people for their words. And what is also really frustrating is the police are always complaining about cuts. You mentioned the public se sector. Yeah. If they didn't spend so much time chasing people on Twitter or arresting people because they criticized a certain race or a certain religion, etc., they would probably have the resources to stop the stabbing ep epidemic in London, mm. the gang warfare that's about, the plethora of drugs that are on our streets. Yeah. And what 
what you're seeing is an imbalance in society. Our Judeo-Christian morals are broken down. Instead, you have your post-liberal Puritans putting censorship on us, making us afraid of being caught about hate speech or hate crime, and people are starting to be imprisoned on it. And yeah. I would add one last point, the UN migrant pact that the UK has inexplicably signed up for also includes points about saying that if you criticize migrants, it will be seen as hate speech. And already we have hate speech laws in the UK, and that terrifies me. But you're not allowed to criticize anything that is destructive to society mm. because it's seen as hate speech or hate crime. It, it, it is a total breakdown of how a society should function. I, I agree with that completely. And I want to go back to this theme about um, use of language. And something concerned yeah. me back at the end of August last year when um, it was the August Bank Holiday and the August Bank Holiday Entertainment in Cardiff was an LGBTQ plus pride march and entertainment associated with that. And they've been running it for some years now, about four or five years, I think, in Cardiff. And I expressed concerns on Twitter about this, that it was essentially a political movement being mm -hmm. built as the main bank holiday entertainment and I, it, we'd seen many stories in the months leading up to it about endless transgender stories and endless political yeah. stories like that and I, I just said can we just have just general family orientated entertainment rather than something with such a political agenda dominating the entertainment and I got some response on Twitter I think a, a, at least 50 people liked that particular tweet but I got a sort of barrage of insults coming my way and one person in particular at least one person uh, tweeted in South Wales Police saying, are you going to prosecute this man for hate speech? <gasps> now, no. I hadn't said anything homophobic. Mm -hmm. I hadn't said anything against um, people's right to live the way they choose. I just questioned the wisdom of having this as the main bank holiday entertainment. And funnily enough, just yesterday, a homosexual yeah. friend of mine visited Cardiff and he said to me that he doesn't like the pride movement because in his in his quite simple words, he said, why can't yeah. we just all get on? He said, I happen to be a gay man. It's yeah. private. It's a personal matter. I don't see the need to make an exhibition of myself in the street or wave flags. It's just how I choose to live. It seems to me, and there's a second part to this question, mm -hmm. organizations like the RSPCA, for those of you who aren't familiar with Britain, the Royal Society for the Prevention of Cruelty to Animals, and South Wales Police and various other organizations felt the need to be part of this Pride March and yeah. put, put rainbow flags on their websites. The RSPCA certainly did that. So did South Wales Police. The message that I seem to be getting from this is that the quiet tolerance of homosexuality is no longer enough. You now have to actively approve or face this backlash. And I think that is deeply concerning. I think for myself, it's the concern to me lies more with the politicization of gender, sexuality, religion, race. It's this whole thing of of identity. It's, the, again, that obsession with who I am and I don't care if I could do anything else. This is what I am. And if you don't like it, I will report you for hate speech. Yeah. I think 
you know, this to me is the essential problem. Whether or not you agree with pride is not the issue. The issue is, is you are allowed to disagree with it. Yes. You should be allowed to disagree for whatever reason you have mm. without being threatened with hate speech. So there are two issues here, the politicization of identity, sexuality, religion, etc., which, you know, you can say for those who have been unfairly persecuted in the past as homosexuals were, then you can sort of understand. But then we get the imbalance coming in because there's nothing to hold the center together. There's no Judeo-Christian ideology, ethos to keep people getting along together, which is really what I'm trying to say. The other point, which is actually even much more frightening to me, is that somebody threatened to go to the police because you disagreed with the with with pride. You have every right to disagree with it. That is your right, and you gave the reasons why, which if somebody doesn't think they're valid, they could have counteracted you and said why, but to threaten to mm. report you mm. is a sign of tyranny in yeah. my my it is. it is and it's actually very very frightening that people are now thinking in that way in the uk we are now at a stage that where certain opinions are compulsory and others are impossible to express and as i going back to what i was saying a minute ago particularly those who work in the public sector we're yes. not yet at a stage where they can put you in prison but it can certainly damage your career expressing such views and i have said that several times, particularly being accused of racism. Now, racism is a hatred, a persecution against people of a different color skin. I grew up with racism. I know exactly what it is. Mm. It is not being racist. You cannot be racist against transgender person. Mm. You cannot be racist against someone with a different nationality. It, it is bizarre. You, you cannot be racist against a vegan. Uh, and I like vegan food. I'm not even bashing vegans. I like <laughs> vegan food. What I'm saying is that it's become the equivalent of the medieval accusation of witchcraft, mm. where you could lose your livelihood, your reputation, and as we know in the medieval times, your life, mm. and certainly be imprisoned from it. Here, you can certainly in the UK now, and in some Western countries, be imprisoned for what they term as racism. The whole concept of racism has become diluted mm. in order to shut down debate, and that again, it's tyrannical. It, it, it is. And going on to the subject of transgenderism, and this has become incredibly yeah. fashionable even in the last two years in yes. the UK. We're hearing everyday stories along these lines. But I think, for example, one of the great historians of this country is a lady called Jan Morris, who had a sex change in the early 1970s in Morocco. Um, and Jan turned 90 a couple of years ago, and the, the Daily Mail journalist Richard Littlejohn interviewed her and spent two hours in her company. And he said the issue of her transgenderism didn't come up once because yeah. she had the operation. She yeah. has she did a lot of work as a historian and a writer before that and has done a lot in the years since. And as far as she is concerned, she had the operation and she cracked on with her life. And she's rightly regarded as one of the great historians, but doesn't you know it doesn't hasn't made her transgenderism a big issue throughout her life um it seems to me that those who just have made such a decision whether it's her or the former mep nikki sinclair or stephanie hayden the lawyer all these people who've had the op and have yes. just got on with their lives 
quietly getting on with your life is no longer an option now. You have to be seen to be identifying as transgender rather than it being a personal matter, largely based on the chromosome test. You made your choice, you now get on with it. And there's a dangerous side to this. Okay, Jan Morris, when she passes on, and I hope it's not for many years yet, will rightly be remembered as one of our great historians with the transgender thing, a little footnote in her life story as far as I am concerned. But we're now getting to a stage where there was a school in Brighton, and I can't remember the exact figure, where it, it, it was certainly in the dozens of children identifying as girls when they're actually boys. And I think this brainwashing that's going on in schools is extremely dangerous because if children are being given drugs for exactly. transgender, I think we're about 10 years away, you know, from some of these people suing the state because they were Absolutely. wrongly given drugs. There was never anything of concern with them to begin with. Boys who just happened to have effeminate personalities being given these drugs. I think we're going down an extremely dangerous path. I think it's very a very dark path. I think it's child abuse. I think if you're an adult and you make the decision to become transgender, then that's fine. Do what you want. You know, in terms of like, you really feel you want to put yourself through that to become who you really think you are, then go for it. But I wrote about this a while ago, and the, the research shows it's only a small percent of people who really have body dysmorphia, where they really really feel that they're in the wrong body and it's psychologically killing them and they need to be able to do a change from one sex to the other and that is understandable nobody wants to see a human being suffer like that mm. but what has happened it's become another form of virtue signaling and this it's for me this is something i wrote about a couple of years ago about Maslow's hierarchy of needs that instead of the self-actualization of society coming into almost like a form of utopia, the West, because we have, most people in the West have enough to eat, have a job, have have shelter, are educated, you know, compared to the rest of the world, we're very wealthy, even though, yes, it might not feel like it a lot of the time, but we really are. Yes. And so instead of pursuing higher intellectual ideologies and activities, We've become a narcissistic, spoiled society, and this whole concept of transgenderism is part of that. And I am not knocking those who truly have that body dysmorphia and really need to change it. I'm talking about the fact that you have these organizations funded by the Department of Education going to schools with children as young as five and six. And talking about sex and gender Mm. to a child, it is child abuse. And then you have these children getting muddled and becomes part of the herd mentality and a trend. Children like to follow trends. So if your best friend suddenly says, oh, I'm I'm a girl, even though they're a boy, you're going to want to do the same thing. This is how children work. Mm. The danger is not only about making children five or six or seven years old aware of sex at such a young age, but it's also giving them drugs that will that will mutilate their bodies, that will change their hormone systems before they even hit puberty. And that is child abuse. And then if you say something against it, you are told that you are racist. So it's, it is a, a very scary that you cannot protest against child abuse, which this is what it is, in case you are accused of hate crime and hate speech. And this is what happens to societies where they forget the historical backbone of them, which is our Judeo-Christian background, our ethos, our ideology. It's been discarded. It's been forgotten. And these crazy 
identity narcissistic movements are taking place and they are damaging our children. They are indeed. And I, I think there are what we're seeing in many cases, particularly that one school in Brighton that was in the news just before Christmas, is that yes. the children are either just boys who happen to have camp personalities or boys, yeah. or boys who may grow up to be homosexuals, both of which is absolutely fine. Absolutely. Uh, and, and to me, a decision about changing your gender should be made as an adult and preferably, yes. preferably done using the chromosome test. Because um, that, that is the one way you can find out whether you have body dysmorphia. And I have great sympathy with those that do. But it is a decision Absolutely. to be made as an adult. Absolutely. And I think we are going down a very, very dark path in this country at the moment. It is child abuse. There is no other way to put it except as child abuse. And our government mm. is complicit in it. Yes. You're abs- and people are afraid to speak out for fear of being branded either racist or transphobic that's become a word that's come into the english language the last few it's absurd it's ridiculous and again it's kind of you know this is also going on in our universities that you know where people are being no platforms because they're seen as transphobic or you know when i was at university many years ago even in the dark ages of apartheid uh there was none of this nonsense of platforming people. There was, you know, as because we really knew what censorship was. We really knew what happens if you you could be imprisoned if you protested against the party government, etc. Mm. So any freedom we really valued. Mm. How students these days don't value the freedom they have. How how they want to censor anybody who doesn't agree with them is. Is bewildering to me and worrying because these are the future leaders of our country and if the, the current crop of MPs are anything to go by they're pretty dismal most of them what is going to happen in 20 30 years ago if 20 30 years time where you have these these children at university who cannot handle any opinion difference to themselves and if you don't go along with the pervading trend are accused of being racist transphobic mm. etc hate crime transphobic hate crime these are new language lexicons these are new rhetoric that is being used to shut down debate because people many people don't like the way society is going in the west yet they are too scared to speak out and rightly so because you can lose your reputation, livelihood, get imprisoned, etc. Yes, you're absolutely right. And I'm going to tell you a little story now, and I've blogged about this in the past. I was at the the University of Liverpool between 2002 and 2005. And I remember one day in October 2002, um, there was an article in the Mail on Sunday by Peter Hitchens, a journalist I've had dealings with a number of times over the years. And it was just after um, the then Conservative MP Alan Duncan, now Sir Alan Duncan, came out as homosexual. And mm-hmm. Peter, Peter Hitchens, who at the time was a supporter of the Conservative Party but is no more, said, mm-hmm. I'm, the headline was, I'm sorry, Mr. Duncan, if you're gay, you're not a Tory. And Mr. Hitchens is, the gist of his article was that you cannot be socially conservative and openly homosexual. And he said that if Mr. Duncan had <laughs> chose to keep this a private matter, um, it would have been none of his business business to comment but because he made it public and that that was Mr Hitchens's view and in the following day I was at um, a seminar with a guy called Chris Lenton who's a member of the Liberal Party not the Liberal Democrats the break the breakaway Liberal Party um, mm-hmm. which, which has a presence on Liverpool Council and I think he still is a Liverpool councillor and um, Lenton said that he couldn't believe Peter Hitchens really believed what he was writing in the paper mm-hmm. so I emailed Peter Hitchens and I said I told him what Lenton had said and Peter said to me I'm willing to come up to the university and debate this issue under a fair mm-hmm. chairman 
and for the following nine months, I battled the University Students' Union Council. Wow. I battled the student's paper, uh, student newspaper, who refused to publicise the story, saying it would give a negative impact on some of its readers. And the end result was, after nine months of battling, he was no platformed and because i and i've still got the email to this day i've kept it and they said it goes it, it, it we can't have a man with his views which belong in the dark ages and it goes it goes against our no platform policy so as far back as 2002 2003 That's the writing wow. was on the wall and yes. what we have seen in the years since i have found instances of people being no platformed at universities for things yes. like believing um believing in brexit i've seen that happen um, i've seen it for p expressing concerns about the rise of radical islam um, I've seen it for people um, having the sort of discussion we're having about the trans agenda. This yeah. is becoming more and more common in British universities, and I find that extremely scary. It is tyranny, again. I mean, personally, I don't agree with what Peter Hitchens had to say, but I would have been fascinated to have sat in a debate with him to see why he said that. It's the only way one learns. How do you know what your own beliefs and ideas and ideologies are if you're always in an echo chamber, mm. because if you're not challenged with what you believe and what you think, mm. you don't grow, you don't learn. Mm. And this is the whole thing. It's, uh, universities are counterproductive now. And it's, mm. yes, it's been very much a creeping thing, but I would say in the last couple of years, it's certainly accelerated. A few months ago, sometime this year, when I was writing about hate crime, I was quite shocked to discover that the police have a dedicated website where you can actually refer you know, you can refer people to, you can accuse people of hate crime or hate speech, a whole website they have mm. set up, and that is what they spend their money and resources on. Mm. The fact that university students, instead of saying, okay, we disagree with Peter Hitchens, let's see what we have to say, and let's debate him, because sometimes debate is actually very intellectually enthralling. Yeah. You learn so much, it makes you think, you challenge yourself, you challenge others, to have that no platform is it's tyranny. It reminds me of the apartheid government. It reminds me of the USSR. You know, any kind of closed regimes like that where no dissent is allowed mm. is happening in our universities. It's happening in our government. And it's very, very, very worrying. Yes. And I, I would add to that something quite important that I've remembered about that episode. And that is that the university's LGBT society, yeah. I think it may have just been LGB in those days. Actually, <laughs> um, They actually supported me. And they said, yes, let's get Peter Hitchens up here to debate this. Absolutely. So get it, getting that society and that group of people on side wasn't enough. Yes. They still wouldn't yes. allow Mr. Hitchens yes. to, to come up and debate it. And incidentally, the other caveat I would put to this is Peter Hitchens has since said in the years since, well, there's two things have happened. One, he no longer supports the Conservative Party. Yeah. And the second is that um, he actually regrets getting involved in the whole debate about gay marriage in the first place, because as far as he was concerned, it was time consuming and actually a bit of a side issue when there are far more important threats to, um, to, 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 to British society. So Peter Hitchens's view, um, again, he was never a, he always said that homosexuality should be legal. But at that time, he said it as a Christian conservative against he went against immorally. But 
Um, and he, the gist of it was, if you're openly gay, you can't call yourself a conservative. Now, I don't agree with that either. I don't agree with that at all. There are plenty of but, openly gay men and women that I know who are conservatives, who support the Tories as well. Hmm. Um, and, I, yeah, I find that was a pretty bizarre thing for him to have said. But, like the LGTB society, I would have been interested to see why and how he said that. That is what you're supposed to do at university. You're supposed to have an yeah. inquiring mind. You, universities are supposed to be places for expanding the mind and discussing Absolutely. and challenging ideas. And one, one of the strange things, I haven't asked you where you are on the Brexit argument, and it's not strictly relevant to what we're discussing <laughs> right now. But, I look, cards on the table. I, I've been a prominent Eurosceptic campaigner for many years locally. <laughs> Um, and what I'm finding is that across Europe now, where we're seeing in Italy, Greece, Portugal, Spain, we're seeing the rise of Eurosceptic movements, and they're fueled by the energy and enthusiasm of the young. Yet in mm -hmm. the UK, the, um, the university educated and those currently in, in university overwhelmingly voted Remain. And I, mm -hmm. I begin to question what is going on at the universities Absolutely. in, in this country. I agree with you. I mean, I, I myself, as an immigrant to the UK and a couple of other countries, I voted for Brexit mm. because I just find this, for me, I have many reasons why I dislike the EU, one of them being their horrible anti-Israel policies, the whole thing of uncontrolled immigration. It's very unfair on immigrants who are already in the country and the indigenous population. You know, it, it's just, for me, the EU was supposed to be an economic agreement. We know now that it's not, and they're trying to position themselves into becoming the United States of Europe. Hmm. Very boring, and I'm surprised young people in countries like Italy and Greece and Spain, where there's a high level of youth unemployment, are against the EU. In the UK, becoming being a Brexiter, voting for Brexit is becoming synonymous with being a so-called racist, which is infuriating again. Hmm. I wonder what these kids are being taught at university to make them think that if you voted for Brexit, which I... A member of a minority group and an immigrant voted for Brexit. I've written about it. I'm very much for Brexit. Uh, how could they possibly think that it, it was a racist act to do? In fact, it, it was far more strengthening and better for the country to be out the EU for many reasons that have been written about over and over again. Mm. Which makes me think, what are these kids learning at university? Well, I, I agree with that. And what I, what I would say is that I know through young people I've spoken to how hard it is for students today to be Eurosceptics on university campuses. And when I, I was in university 2002 to 2005, mm. and it was, I was certainly in a minority then, but I can only think of one incident where it became unpleasant. I think the atmosphere on university campuses in the years since, and particularly yes. in the run-up to the vote and in the two years since the vote, has become very hostile and very difficult for those students who do believe in Euroscepticism. Um, and I, I think, why do people hold the opinions they hold in life? And I think particularly when you're that age, you yes. don't want to be seen to be standing out from those around you. Now, it didn't bother me that much, because mm. I've always had that rebellious streak in me. But, uh, <laughs> I, I, do, I do know from the stories I've heard that university campuses are very difficult places for Leave supporters and Eurosceptics to be nowadays. And I'm saying, like, as well, conservatives as well, you know, it's very hard for them. Again, it's that whole trend thing that not only kids do, but at university, which is 
worrying now because the university is a time for you to rebel and to explore different ideas. I think very much I'm beginning to get the impression, particularly with the whole so-called people's vote, which is a misnomer uh, like I've never heard before, because to ask for a second vote for the uh, on, uh, you know, on Brexit is goes against the whole idea of democracy. We've had the vote, people have voted, there's no such thing as a people's vote second time round, it's not best of three. And basically what I'm beginning to think is just as how I see, you know, with Jeremy Corbyn and his cult, which is now most of Labour, I would say that those who push for Romania are part of this whole Romanian movement are now part of an EU cult. Anybody who paints a flag on their face like that wraps themselves in what is technically an economic agreement um, with the flag of, the, of that economic agreement and says anybody who doesn't agree with me is a racist, showing signs of belonging to a cult. And what you're having at university are people, students, behaving in a cult-like fashion. There is no coincidence that, for example, the leaders of the Khmer Rouge in Cambodia were intellectuals who studied in Paris. You know, you have these very intelligent people. If there's a gap somewhere, a vacuum of ideology and morality, they will start to polarize and cling on to some very destructive ideas and ideologies. Yes, I think that's right, Karen. And we've discussed this uh, on talk podcasts, on our regular Brexit briefing podcast. This this topic has come up time and time again. I'm sure it will again in the next few months. Um, so yes. please, if you're interested in exploring this, anyone listening, tune into the Brexit briefing podcast because this comes up a lot in there. Um, I want to go back to get back on track with regards to the article you wrote uh, for the Conservative Woman website. Um, and you have you've said something along the lines of that many churches have become this is how I interpreted it many churches in the UK in particular have become vehicles for sort of trendy priests and vicars with their virtue signaling credentials and social justice warriors is this something more associated with the Anglican church do you think and does it does the Anglican church really know what it stands for anymore because the reason i mention the anglican church in particular is that the rare occasions i go into anglican churches the sermons very often sound like guardian editorials to me in many ways um and um, as, as scripture tells us a man cannot worship two masters you can either follow the bible or you can worship at the church of diversity and political correctness but one thing's for sure you've got to choose um, and do you think this is more something associated with the Anglican Church and, and the trendiness of it, or, or what do you make of it? I don't think it's particular to the Anglican Church. Um, I have found over the years, you, uh, for, because my interest really lies very much in anti-Semitism, mm. etc., I have been following a lot of the churches, and unfortunately many of them ignore the persecution of Christians, mm and spend a lot of time and resources attacking Israel. And, I mean, for example, CAFID, which is the Catholic Agency for Overseas Development, on a well, yes. notoriously anti-Israel, the Quakers as well, the Methodists, it, there's a whole long list of churches and um, denominations that devote so much time to virtue signaling to 
blocking the, Israeli, the Israelis to actual support of very anti-Semitic documents like the Kairos document, which um, says that Jews no longer have a covenant with God and that's why they shouldn't be in Israel. So the, the, the answer that I would give you is no, it's not just particular as far as I know to the Anglican Church. It is in a lot of British churches, a lot of denominations that this really nonsense and misguided loyalties to those who actually persecute Christians themselves, that goes on so much. Yes, and, and this is something you came onto in your article, uh, the yes. International Holocaust Remembrance Alliance. The definition yes. of anti-Semitism was written to prevent another genocide against Jews. And you yes. have pointed out that the time has come to create a similar document for Christians. Absolutely. And we cannot rely on the British churches to do this because, yeah. in your words, most have fallen under the spell of cultural Marxism or yes. Islamism. And their connection yes. to Christianity is now intelligible it's very it's very intangible i think you know for example like a few years ago st james's church in piccadilly had this whole thing about the the security wall that israel has up with regarding on the west bank and israel since that wall has been up terrorist attacks and you know bombs against israelis of all races and religions mm. has gone down phenomenally that war protects israeli citizens whether they're jewish christian or muslim mm. um, and basically there was this whole thing of you know israel bad palestinians good you cannot have that you know dichotomy like that it's such nonsense mm. and it's a blood libel uh, basically the you know the st james church you can google in 2014 i think it was that they had this big deal about you know christ at the checkpoint the methodists have done this as well we've just recently seen with christmas this conflation of christ of jesus christ with a refugee and a palestinian it is this is part of the Kairos document replacement theology where jews are literally denied their own heritage and Jesus has turned into a Palestinian symbol when he is not. He was a Jew, as we know. Mm. And I think very, what troubles me is a lot of these churches are supporting, if you have a look at the Open Doors watch list, the Palestinians are, I believe, at number Palestinian territories are at number 36 on their world watch list of the persecution of Christians, as well as many other, you know, I think North Korea is in first place, there's Pakistan, there's Iran, there's Nigeria, where Christians are in, in terrible peril, being imprisoned, being killed, being, you know, kept in terror, you know, not allowed to work in certain professions, they are persecuted and discriminated against. And my question to these churches is, why are you attacking Israel, where Christians are free to live the life that they want, free to worship in safety, protected by the IDF, etc.? And why are you supporting regimes such as Hamas and the Palestinian Authority that attack Christians to the point that they flee to get into Israel? Why aren't you helping those Christians in Nigeria who are attacked by Islamists on a daily basis? In Pakistan, where it's systematic government persecution of Christians there, why hasn't Asia Bibi been given sanctuary in the UK? We are a Christian nation. She is a Christian woman in 
peril for her life and has been for years. Why has Theresa May not given sanctuary to this woman? These, this to me means that the Christian church, and why hasn't the Christian leader spoken out and said, bring her in or stop the persecution of Christians? And we know that Jeremy Hunt has said that they're going to do a review. A review is not good enough. Mm. A review will take months. A review will be like, okay, this is happening. This is what we do. But the fact that the that you, the UK is inactive and passive against the whole issue of persecution of, of Christians. The fact that our churches in the UK are siding with Islamists who persecute their own brethren is something that, for me, is bewildering, troubling. And to be quite frank, if we're going to talk in terms of good and evil, I find it quite evil. Well, yes, and I, I, I think now we're going to explore a bit further the decline of Christianity in the Middle yeah. East throughout the 20th century and into yes. the 21st century. There was one little glimmer of hope. Um, Iraq officially recognised Christmas Day this year. Which yes, was, that was lovely. That, that was, and we, we, we take our hat off to them on that. Um, but we yeah. look at the decline of the Christian populations in, say, Jordan and in the Palestinian territories, the figures I have to hand. In the 1990s, so in living memory for most of us, um, in, in the 1990s it was 173,000 Christians. Today there are below 75,000 and there are as few as 1,000 in Gaza. And in many yeah. cases there's been emigration to Chile and other parts of South America. Um, yeah. uh, it, we, we then go to Turkey where in 1914 there were around 3 million Christians. Today there's around 160,000. And yeah. this, we're seeing this across the Middle East, that the land where Christianity began, Christians mm -hmm. are feeling increasingly intimidated and that they, don't, they feel as though they don't have a home there anymore. And they're not free to practice their faith. They are persecuted. They are in fear of their lives. Mm. And the world just sits by and does nothing. And I find that frightening. It is... Christians, to me, from what I have researched and looked at, are the most persecuted people in the world. You mentioned the Middle East, but we mustn't forget Africa as well, countries yes. like Nigeria and Somalia, Sudan, um, where Christians are persecuted beyond beyond any kind of understanding that we have in the West of what persecution really is. Um, it is, for me, a very troubling aspect of our world today that these are the most persecuted people in the world and where are they going and how many are dying on a regular basis i mean i literally i think open door says like they, i mean there's several thousand christians who are being killed for their faith every day mm. and that to me speaks of genocide karen why do you think we are hearing a lot less about the persecution of Christians than we are about the persecution of other groups in this world. Why do you think the media doesn't pick up on it in the same way? Because for some reason, I would say, the media, particularly in the UK and perhaps in the States as well, are very left-leaning. And the left have this bizarre love-in with Islamism. I'm not talking about Islam as a religion. I'm talking about Islamism, Islamic fundamentalism. There's this whole idea that you know, if you are an Islamist, that you cannot do any wrong, that you're protesting, you know, terrible Americans who have so-called bombed your country, etc. This is anti-American, anti-West, anti-Christian ethos in our media and in our government. So you don't hear that much about persecution of Christians because it's done mainly 
by Islamists, and you because the the left and our media etc don't like to criticize Islamists. I'm not talking about Islam, I'm talking about Islamist Islamic fundamentalists, because that is who's doing the persecution in most of these countries, because they're too afraid of being accused of being called racist, etc., that they won't report it. Hmm. And the other thing is, is a self-hatred that many in the West have for their own culture and their own religion. That, you know, for me, I, I get annoyed with people when they knock people for Christian beliefs, because Every society has a belief. In Africa, you have many societies that have a combination of ancestral worship combined with Christianity brought on, you know, brought to them by the colonists a few centuries ago. It's very interesting. Ancestral worship combined with Christianity creates the most vibrant belief system. You can't knock people for having a belief in Christianity. It's a very, you know, a lot of people when they do that don't realize that they're knocking and, and ridiculing millions of people uh, I, so I would say it's two things just to sum up there's fear of being called racist if you criticize Islamists who do the persecution of Christians and the self-hatred that many on the left and in the West have for Christians and their own culture and why do you think, when we think of prominent journalists who've talked a lot about the, um, the Palestinians and, and you've got the people like John Pilger and Robert Fisk and Noam Chomsky, why do you think Pilger, Fisk and Chomsky won't extend that same courtesy and that same journalistic rigour to exposing the way Christians are treated in those very same countries? It's an odd one, I think. You know, as Jews have a saying, no Jews, no news. Mm. And I would say, you know... I, I would say that they are driven by a hatred of Israel, whether it extends from anti-Semitism or not, I cannot say. You know, I would, for myself personally, I think anybody who inexplicably focuses on Israel to that extent, to the point that they are, are spreading propaganda, Islamist propaganda, and blood libels probably doesn't like us Jews very much. And it's very much, yes, it's no Jews, no news. And as well, again, that hatred of self, of it's, it's a, almost a sickness in Western society to hate anything that is Western, that is Christian. It's, it's been a slow drip feed, I would say, probably of cultural Marxism, of the whole concept of multiculturalism, of so-called diversity. Diversity is great, it's lovely, but it, if you start to denigrate and criticize your own culture and lose that, you lose your focus, you lose your ethos, you lose your understanding of what's going on in the world. And I, I would put that I would put that as another reason, if that makes sense. It does indeed. And I think, to me, the way I look at the world, it's important to differentiate between multiracialism and multiculturalism. You can have many races, you can even have many faiths, but ultimately you can only have one culture if a country yes. is, is to be is to be a free and tolerant country. And yes. in, in, in the case of the United Kingdom, our legal system, our language, our values are based on Judeo-Christian values. And if, if, you, if you remove that, you've got to replace it with something else. And this exactly. cult of diversity and political correctness, which is attempting to fill that vacuum, is, is quite dangerous, I think. Very much so. I mean, I have a huge problem with the concept of multiculturalism because I think it creates ghettos. Mm. We see that already. Living in Singapore, yes, you can almost, some people call it a benign dictatorship, but it was very interesting to see what they do there because they have 
people of many nationalities and races and religions who live there, and they practice integration. So, for example, I, I think it's about 90% of Singaporeans live in government housing, and they have to have a certain quota of different religions and nationalities living in those government housing. So you have Christians and Muslims, um, Malay and Chinese, living together in one big housing block in all of the different housing blocks. So you have integration and what is it was very interesting to me to notice one of the effects of that integration was and it certainly wasn't enforced was a deep pride all singaporeans had in their country i was there for what they call national day and it was amazing there were women in hijabs on the train and men chinese men all waving the singaporean flag all you know it was it wasn't forced like you see in north korea or any of these totalitarian states but it was joy and a united national identity and i mean i found whenever i mentioned to a singaporean from any race or nationality how much i love singapore the pride in their faces and the society works yes it is a very censored society but it works well in terms of integration because that is what's practiced. Multiculturalism is separating people. And you will always have, humans are led by ego. So you will always have one dominant culture rising to the top, or one dominant ideology rising to the top. And unfortunately, it's not our united Judeo-Christian culture that's rising. It is this culture of post-liberal Puritans combined with Islamism that is First of all, we know it's creating anti-Semitism in our country and also it's creating that narcissistic divisiveness that makes everyday life actually quite difficult to live in the UK now. I, 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 I agree with that. And I would also say I know quite a bit about Singapore and I would, re- I would regard Singapore and the story of Lee Kuan Yew in the second yes. half of the 20th century as an absolutely extraordinary story. And if you haven't already read it, please go and buy the book From Third World to First World by Lee Kuan Yew. It was one of the last books he wrote. And he led Singapore for many, many years. Even after he retired in 1990, he was still a very prominent figure in the country. And his son is the current prime minister of Singapore, an incredibly bright man. And Lee Kuan Yew, and he he recorded a number of YouTube interviews in the final years of his life. He, He only died a couple of years ago. And he said, going back to the 1960s, when he first put that policy of where you live is decided by the government, he said if he hadn't done that... Yeah. You would have ended up with ghettos in Singapore. Yes. You would have had a Dutch ghetto, a Chinese ghetto, a Malay ghetto, a Gessler's ghetto. And he said it was so important that your neighbor is from a different background to yourself. Yes. And that forced people to mix and to integrate. And he said, even now, 50 years later, that policy needs to remain in place because we're not there yet, in his words. No. No. Um, so... Uh, Lee Kuan Yew, I have, a tre- I have a tremendous respect for that man because th- there's a lot of very firm laws in Singapore. Yes. Uh, you dare not step out of line, no. but everybody is treated in, in, in the same way. All religions yes. are respected. And the one very thing he true. did say is he said, you have as much political discourse as you like as far as he's concerned, but when it comes to race, language or religion, please tread carefully. That was what he asked of his people. And there were certain rules, businesses to be conducted in English, but minority languages are respected. Um, But again, everybody is treated the same. You you are expected to embrace the Singaporean identity. 
And that's the key. There's a Singaporean identity and that creates such cohesiveness of people from different religions and races and nationality coming together. It was quite a revelation after seeing the discord for many years in the UK, mm. particularly created by, you know, identity politics and multiculturalism to see that, mm. um, that united identity. Countries need it. People need, people need some central identity to hold on to. If not, then you get these fractured identities that create divisiveness. Mm. And yes, I mean, Singapore was a revelation for me. It I, was, I'm yeah. sure it was, and I would strongly recommend you buy that book, Lee, Lee Kuan Yew, From Third World to First World. It's a very long book. There's a big section on Britain in there because he lived in Britain in the 1950s and he understood British politics inside out from the 1950s right up until the Blair era. And he has a lot to say on that as well. So Lee Kuan Yew... Yeah top man and i would strongly recommend that book and i'll tell you something interesting that i felt in singapore the only it was the only place i felt safe as a jew and to tell people i was jewish other than of course when i've been to israel mm. and that was remarkable to me you know that i that i didn't have to kind of you know hide that i was jewish that i mm. didn't get a you know i you know there was people Jewish people that I knew, they would walk around with yarmulkes and, you know, self-identifying Jewish kind of symbols. Nobody attacked them. There was, I mean, it was quite, I felt incredibly safe there as a Jew, which is testament to the Singaporeans for the society that they have created. It is an extraordinary success story. And I think post-Brexit Britain can learn a lot from Singapore uh, in so many ways, ways we haven't got time to go into now. I'd like to round off this this podcast yeah. by going back to Britain and, and looking at the situation in Britain and the sort of willful abandonment of Judeo-Christian society in Britain. Um, in Britain, we've seen a rise in a Muslim population in quite a short space of time. In mm -hmm. 1961, there were around 60,000 Muslims. By 1991, there were 950,000 Muslims. 2001, that had gone up to 1,600,000 as the, the Blair policy of uncontrolled mass immigration really started to take hold. Yes. By 2011, it had gone from 1.6 million 10 years earlier to 2.706 million. And then mm -hmm. in 2014, it passed the 3 million barrier. Um, in 1961, there were seven mosques in the UK. By 1991, there were 443. And today, mm -hmm. there are around 1,750. Um, now, nature doesn't like a vacuum. Secular societies historically don't tend to last very long before something fills that vacuum, if you look at the history of the world. It is inevitable now that Muslims are going to make up a significant minority of the British population, whether we like it or not. That's something we're going to have to learn to live with. What, how can I put this? What hope is there for Britain to build a tolerant, open, free society? Because I think there are two things that need to happen. I think mm -hmm. we need to address the issue of Islamic extremism head on. Yes. Because, yeah. look, three million Muslims in this country, if only 5% of them are extremists, yeah. that's still 150,000 people living here who hold those sort of views, even if it's only 5%. And the second is, I think we need to become much more, whilst being responsible, be as speak fearlessly and freely about what we really think and what we really believe. That's not a license to hurl racial insults or to be personally abusive, but I think we need to be much more rigorous in abandoning politically correct language all the time. I think very much 
go back to Singapore and having a look that, you know, they have a sizable Muslim population that there's no issue. I think for me, it doesn't matter how big the Muslim population is as long as integration is practiced. If you have multiculturalism that creates divisions, mm. that's where the extremism starts to creep in because there's no sense of, you know, this is my country that I, I, I love and I want to protect and, and take care of my fellow citizens, etc. You know, it was interesting when I was in Singapore in, in the newspaper, the government had found some workers had come, I can't remember, I think they were from Bangladesh and they had started, you know, spreading some kind of Islamist message about, you know, about, you know, creating a, ter a terrorist attack on Singaporeans, the government kicked them straight out. And I think this is, you know, for, as I've always said in the pieces I've written about this particular issue, there are millions of Muslims in our country who have come from Islamist regimes and want to get away from them. Mm. They don't want this in this in, in, in what should be a free and tolerant UK. They, they, they left their home countries to get away from this nonsense and and, re and Islamic regimenism, it is a, it's a travesty for them that they're having to kind of go through this again. It's very unfair. I think to me, it doesn't matter about the numbers of how many Muslims are here or not. What matters is the integration of them. And I mean, for example, like David Cameron, who's not my favorite politician, but he did the right thing a few years ago where he said, like, you know, immigrant Muslim, you know, mainly, it was mainly Muslim women who come from countries like Pakistan who can't speak English, we should give them English lessons. And, and I thought that was a very good, he was pillared for it, mm. stupid. So, but I thought that was a very good suggestion because that would promote integration and you know our values as a Christian country where women are empowered, where women can go out and get a job if they want to, where you know part of kind of equality and free choice is is part of being British or it was. <laughs> it's rapidly disappearing. So my answer to your question is, it's not about the numbers, it's about integration. And it's unfair on the, on those Muslims who are secularists, who are reformists, who might be religious, but have fled Islamist regimes because they, they don't want to have a life where they are, you know, under the thumb of some kind of, you know, Islamist dictator, as we see in Iran, etc., Yes. And so I think that's the one thing. The other point that I would make is that, to me, Islamism, Islamic fundamentalism, is the greatest threat to our security. We are at war with Islamic fundamentalism, whether we like it or not. The recent attack at Manchester Station, that was an Islamist attack. To, mean, to call it a mental health issue, first of all, it's very unfair on those who do suffer mental health issues. And two, you're not going to help the situation. If we cannot speak the truth of what is going on, it will just get worse and worse and worse. And that is what we see happening every day. Yes, this issue of is Islamic extremism and that those who are responsible for these attacks. I have looked into various attacks, whether it's the Nice attack or the attack in Berlin a while ago. <laughs> And there's a certain pattern that follows, and that is that they were very often radicalized, not in the mosques, but in things they have seen on the Internet. And that's a very, it's like the Nice attacker never yes. went anywhere near a mosque. Uh, he wasn't known and he was actually a, a big drinker, we believe now. Uh, mm. So he wasn't following a Muslim lifestyle. He was getting the things he believed from the Internet. And in this age, you and I are old enough to remember a time where TV 
even swearing couldn't be on before the 9pm watershed in Britain. <laughs> and, but, and, and there were rules even to this day on TV, there were rules about what you can and can't show um, yeah. in regards to nudity and so forth. Whereas the internet is a complete, it's like the Wild West, it's a complete free-for-all. How, <laughs> how do we stop people in the privacy of their bedrooms or their living rooms accessing this extreme material? Because that seems to be where they're being radicalised more than anywhere else, far more so than the mosques. You don't. You can't. The prob- the issue that happens is that if we stop them, if, if we ban things on the internet, then we're starting to go down the road of censorship. What happens is it has to be a whole change in ideas and ideology and loyalty. You know, these people need to feel like that. I always think that that post-liberal Puritans and the left are doing no favours to the rest of us by their constant, you know, accusations that you're racist and, you know, the West is terrible and Christianity is awful, etc. Because what you're doing is you're denigrating your own culture, you're criticising your own culture. So these kids and all these, these terrorists are going to think, well, I live here, it's a terrible place, everyone's racist, so, you know, let me be drawn to a polarisation ideology. It goes, it goes back to my original point of saying, take away our Judeo-Christian heritage, you get polarisation. So you actually, unless you have censorship on the internet, which I don't advocate for, you will have these would-be terrorists, you know, getting radicalised on the internet. Mm-hmm. The, the way to tackle it is to create a, a national identity, first of all, and second of all, is to crack down on them. You know, this is nonsense that you can't kick out anybody that is a terrorist thanks to the EU regulations. You know, you anybody who is a threat to our country, whether they are British citizens or not, they should have their citizenship taken away and expelled from the country. Mm. To me, that is the only way that you're going to get rid of the threat. If they are here amongst us, then that should be cracked down upon. No, I don't think that the rest of us should be made to suffer from a censorship on the internet because of these terrorists. I also think that, you know, it's a matter of priorities. You know, are the police going to chase down some person because, you know, they are, you know, said something they didn't like, you know, a transgender person or etc are they going to devote their resources and, and time to that or are they going to actually crack down on those who are radicalized and they do they do know who they are and arrest them and kick them out of the country and if somebody is arrested as we've seen with the person in Manchester for a terrorist attack because that is what that was that stabbing was a, ter- a terrorist Islamist attack our politicians need to speak out and say without any nonsense, without any hesitation that Islamism, Islamic fundamentalism has no place in our country and anybody caught doing things, creating terror attacks in the name of Islamic fundamentalism will be go to prison for a very long time and then get expelled. There is no other way to to work this. Our churches need to grow up, our our priests and our vicars need to grow up and start to actually stand up for their own brethren in their own country instead of, you know, crying crocodile tears for what are actually... Islamists. Mm, mm. Uh, It's a whole skewing of priorities and ideologies that 
until that is rectified, this will carry on. I, I think you're right. And I think Christians in, in Britain need to start being less cautious about yes. expressing symbols of their faith. If you want to wear a crucifix to work, you carry Absolutely. on. If you want, when, when you go to the canteen for your lunch, if you want to say a prayer before you begin eating, that should be fine as well. Because there is no way that Muslims would ever be stopped from doing similar things, expressions of their faith. And it should be the same for all of us. We as Christians need to start standing up for ourselves. And, you know, Christian shop owners, guess what? Next Christmas, there'll be a nativity display in the window. All our, all our signs will say Merry Christmas. It won't say Seasons Greetings or Happy Holidays. It will say Christmas. Do you know, as a Jew, I hate Happy Holidays. Yeah, so do Just I. Just say Merry Christmas to me. I'm, I'm not going to be offended. I'll mm. say it right back. Mm. I mean, it, it's, it, it's Christmas. So say the words. What are you so scared about, you know? Yeah. And, and it's and I'm absolutely, absolutely right. It's not just the churches and our government, but Christians in this country, first of all, I would say, sadly, that many have gone down the anti-Israel route and they need to kind of realize who they're supporting and that they are, you know, Israel is a beacon of hope for Christianity in the Middle East. You know, Christians are free to practice there. They're safe. They're protected. Mm. Um, they have to turn their attention to the Islamists that they support and their propaganda against Israel and realize that, you know, what they're doing is making things so much more difficult for their brethren, not only in these countries that Christians are persecuted, but in the UK as well. It's... Own your heritage, own your religion, be proud of it. It is a good religion, and I cannot understand why they are so afraid to do so. You know, stand up for yourselves. I, I can understand it, and I think it's this. I think particularly those working in the public sector, whether it's yeah. at local councils or in, in the education system or even in the NHS, they yes. fear expressions of Christianity because diversity and political correctness have become the religions of the workplace. And yes. they, they fear that if they express their Christian faith too openly, it will either damage their careers or lead to them losing their jobs. And we have seen many examples of this. Yes, we have. And that is persecution of Christians. If you cannot openly practice your faith, you cannot openly wear crucifixes at, at, at work or pray, in, as you say, in the canteen at lunch before you eat. If you cannot do that because you're scared you will lose your job, that is persecution. It, it is indeed. And one final point, and we're coming towards the end of the interview now, is... Have you done much research into the persecution of the Ahmadiyya Muslim sect? I haven't done a lot, but I, I think it's very similar in terms of that they are heavily persecuted, like Christians are, mm. in places like Pakistan, etc., as far as I know. Yes, and I, 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 you're right, and I, I'll just explain a little bit for those who don't know who the Ahmadiyya are. They are a minority Muslim sect, and they... What they believe is that after the Prophet Muhammad, there were further prophets, and that has brought them into conflict with Sunni and Shia Islam, who believe that Muhammad was the final prophet. But what we find is we've got an Ahmadiyya sect in the United Kingdom, and as Douglas Murray has said in some of his writing, that they are by far the best integrated of the Muslim communities in Britain, because a pattern emerges, and Douglas pointed this out in an article he wrote for The Spectator, where he said that every time there's a Muslim terror attack, about three days later, there'll be in the mainstream media on the BBC News website and so forth, the Muslim good news story, where it's something along the lines of after the Westminster attack, Muslims held hands on Westminster Bridge in an act of solidarity. And he says every time there is this Muslim good news story, 
Um, it's the Ahmadiyya sect who are behind it. And he said, for example, when the priest was beheaded in uh, northern France a few years ago, there was that elderly Catholic priest beheaded while he was saying mass. Yes, I remember that. He, he said that the, the, the Muslim community who we were told stood alongside them and had held a vigil. They were the Ahmadiyya sect. As I say, the Muslims on Westminster Bridge, the Ahmadiyya sect. If you see yes. Muslims selling poppies in Britain in the run-up to Remembrance <laughs> every November, they're more than likely the Ahmadiyya sect. And I know from what I've heard living in my home city of Cardiff, how yeah. they face persecution from other Muslim sects. Um, yeah. I, I, I would like to pay tribute to the Ahmadiyya Islamic sect for the way they have integrated into British society and the enormous contribution they make to life in Britain. And I, I think it is a great concern the way they are discriminated against both in the UK <laughs> and also in Pakistan and elsewhere in the world. And that comes down to the whole thing about this left loving with Islamism, because those are the ones who are doing the persecution mm. aided by the left. And I would I would clarify that and go further and say not only are they integrated, but there are millions of Muslims in the UK, hundreds and thousands, who are just as integrated, who are just as proud of the of being British, who who also love Christmas, etc., mm. and who are subjected, you know, to abuse if they they themselves kind of you know, want to kind of be proud of a British identity, who, you know, and and this is aided by the left and post-liberal Puritans. And so you're having minority groups. Well, Christianity is actually turning into a minority group in the UK now. And, and you're having this, this persecution going on in what should be an enlightened, tolerant country. Mm. But it's not, because the focus is on... Narcissism, identity politics, multiculturalism, diversity. And what happens is that the less dominant religion, culture, etc. is sinking and becoming persecuted. And that is shameful. Karen Haradine. And if you want to read the accompanying article on the Conservative Woman website or read more of Karen's work, you can do so by visiting conservativewoman.co.uk or by following the link on the Talk Podcast website. Thank you for listening. See you next time.